Uh, well, thanks for coming back on the podcast. It's going pretty good. Uh, and again, thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to talk. We haven't talked in a, almost eight months. And well, first off, you have a, a full book out. And I think a, a lot's changed uh, in the last few months. Yeah, I think uh, back in October, I think everything was being finalized. Well, I guess that was the start of the process for my first full collection coming out. It didn't come out until January 15th. And I was kind of right at the beginning, I, I think, of that process, uh, which really didn't end until, like, January 8th. <laughs> uh, I handled all the um, typesetting and design layout for the book. So I was you know, pulling my hair out for you know, about four months, uh, trying to get everything straight. Uh, and, you know... You, of course, you always find mistakes after the fact. So those two or three mistakes they are glaring to me now, but uh, I'm I'm very happy with the with the outcome. Yeah, just let me say I, I was going to ask you about this, but yeah, I noticed that you did design and lay out the book, and all the artwork is yours too. I think, yeah. and yeah, it just it looks <laughs> it looks really good. And I, I saw you tweet maybe like a week or two ago that you also had done cover art for a book that uh, Ishmael Reed had blurbed, and I know how much uh, you're a fan of his. You know. <laughs> Would you mind what what book was that, by the way? Uh, it was for a writer, uh, uh, Keith Gilliard, uh, who is a friend of Ishmael Reed. I didn't know uh, at the time uh, that Mr. Reed had blurbed his book until that not until after I got my copy. But uh, uh, a friend had said, you know, he knew someone that needed uh, artwork done for a book cover, uh, and I did a. I got in touch with that person, and he accepted some art for. Uh, the uh, I think it's the the great old school, the last great old school conspiracy. I think is the name of it. Uh, it's a novella, uh, and it's a uh, a wonderful book, a little short book. It's probably uh, maybe eighty pages or so. Uh, but I, I got my copy and I turned it around and looked at it, and I was just uh, like, "Oh my God, this Marie!" You know my. <laughs> My art, I would have did it for free, you know. <laughs> so, had I known that, uh, I'm glad he didn't know. I'm glad I got paid something out of it. But uh, they were just like, uh, it's probably about as close to famous as I'll ever get, I think. Uh, or, or the fame I want, you know, to share a work uh, with uh, Mr. Reed is, even though he doesn't know who I am, you know, um, is marvelous for me. Yeah, in this work, you know, it has some stuff like we previously talked about, like um, the Time Unraveler's Travel Journal. But you also uh, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of new stuff in here. It's mostly stuff I think that I that I had in red, and even some additions. Like I want to say the the last poem in the collection, like Protoplasmic Phrenology, was wasn't in the uh, Time Unraveler's Travel Journal chapbook that we that we previously talked about. So like, what was what was that like trying to include some more works to I guess complement some of these other works that you've that we've <laughs> that we've talked about a couple times? Uh, well, <laughs> first of all, I guess it's a, a delight to t actually talk about the book. This is our third interview. Yeah, and I know. Right? <laughs> like the first two for like three whole hours, I think I I rambled over everything except the book. So I'm glad to be talking about the book now. <laughs> but uh, hard this, hardly uh, first. For hardly the first time that that's happened. I think uh, it wasn't so much 
what was being added to this book uh, for the sake of the collection because it, in theory, it started off as one big, huge book of about 350 pages. Uh, and I had sent it all to a local publisher. Uh, he's a, a gentleman here at Broadstone Books, the owner of Broadstone Books, had uh, said he wanted to publish my work. Uh, this has been maybe three years ago. So I spent uh, several months putting together uh, everything I had that I thought could probably be acceptable for work, uh, for a collection. And I sent it to him uh, with the expectation that he would, uh, it, it wasn't necessarily themed. So I thought he would just pick, you know, the poems that he wanted to, out of that, out of that mass uh, and just go with that. So uh, he never really got back with me. I guess he was just processing it. And over several months had several months had passed, and uh, uh, Michael Scharf, who is the, uh, the my publisher with uh, Harry Tanko's books for this, he reached out. He was like, you know, I'm a fan of your work. Uh, if you have any cast off poems, uh, I, he had saw the chapbook. He's like, hey, if you have any just cast off poems uh, that you don't care about. Um, you know, please send them my way. So I was like, well, okay. And about the same time, I received an email from Broadstone saying, uh, you know, yeah, there's no way we can publish 350 pages of poems, you know. So it kind of left it up to me to to call out what, you know, to call it down into a collection for him. So what was called from that became this book, uh, Deifying the Total Darkness. and. Um, and then, you know, that, that took that collection down to about, you know, 250 pages or so, uh, which got called a second time for a third collection that will come out. Uh, I'm still negotiating the, with the publisher now, but I have interest in that book. Um, so hopefully that will be out next year sometime. But it all, all of this began as one collection, so it wasn't really as much um trying to add to the chapbook it was it was pretty much you know what i'm taking away from the, the overall uh manuscript the big humongous file uh that kind of made sense in one collection so uh, so there are a lot of i mean this was probably what i what i had called away to to form the bones of this probably included a whole nother 20 poems also that eventually got called away uh, to streamline it. So I don't, know, I don't even know how to describe that process. It was crazy, you know, to, uh, you know, that was the whole other aspect, you know, of, of calling and then having to also edit the poems because these are, these are works of, for the most part, I never thought I would ever publish in my lifetime. I never really sought to publish my work. Uh, so when uh, you know, gentlemen came along and wanted to publish my chapbooks, you know, I had to get those things kind of like print ready, uh, you know, to make sure, like, oh, is this going to make sense uh, to people who read it? it? Makes sense to me. I wrote it, but <laughs> will it make sense to other people? 
Uh, other people see these as poems. Uh, how will these? How will this work be taken? So I had to craft it uh, a little bit more. So, and that takes time. You have, you know, there are people who spend ten years crafting uh, a single, you know, chapbook, and here I have, you know, three hundred pages uh, that I'm trying to get ready within, you know, a two year span for for publication. Uh, it was all consuming, you know, but I, I like the result for this. Um, I was worried that this might even be stronger uh, than the initial collection with Broadstone uh, because I took so many good poems out that I loved. Um, and I was concerned that the next, the next collection, which hopefully should be out in about two months, uh, is called To Emit Teal, um, which is a play on words uh, to uh, Emmett Till, uh, who was killed uh, years ago, horrifically. Um, but that collection feels familiar to this one because they're all, you know, from the same, uh, have the same origins for the most part uh, as far as the collection goes. But, uh, but I really like that collection too. It had to grow on me. And it took a lot of editing, uh, which I uh, just finished yesterday, really. Uh, and I haven't even sent to Broadstone yet the final uh, manuscript uh, for them to look at and then to send back to me for revision. So that's still uh, something I'm having to live with, uh, grow accustomed to, I guess, this having it final, feel final that I've, I've done that. but. Um, and feel free to stop me from rambling because I'm trying to. Oh no! I'm trying to assemble uh, these three collections in my mind, how to place them in some type of order when I when I talk about them that makes sense, and not just you know continue to jump from one book to the next. No, I think that but really yeah. helps uh, to hear your thought process there because I know, and we, as we talked about in the past, you know, you have you know years and years of writing that you're trying to put into these collections and I'm, first off I just want to say I'm really glad to hear that you know you have probably have two more forthcoming that's that's good to hear because I know you have so much so many poems to that, <laughs> that are you, it, you're ready to share yeah I guess the problem would be now because um, I haven't written anything new really and my I've done so much spent so much time editing um, it's like do I still, will I still consider myself a poet in a year from now or two years from now? Because I haven't worked on anything new. I have concepts for uh, future collections, but I don't have any poems really to go into those things. I, I don't, whatever, there's probably 80 pages of poems left over from this whole process. Um, and they, I don't know if anything really strong remains that they could be, you know, featured in their own collection. So there's probably two or three chapbooks maybe for those works. Um, but I, I might be done as a poet. You know, I feel like, okay, well, uh, I've always wanted to do like, I've always been, I've always written uh, like love poems and revolutionary poems in my youth. Uh, so there was a part of me that's like, well, now this is going to be the uh, love or you know, romance uh, 
romanticism focus on my writing career. I'm going to write these uh, love poems that, that are less, they're still black, but less political in their nature. Uh, how do I tackle that for a whole collection? So, but I don't know if I'm, I'll actually sit down and do that. You know, I don't know where my writing will go after uh, these two ne next two manuscripts come out. You know, I've considered maybe short stories because I write a lot of my poems are pages long. Uh, they probably should be short stories. So you know, maybe that's the route I'll take. Um, I do have a lot of ideas. I have no training uh, in writing fiction, which is you know would be a whole new skill set that I have to learn. Well, one of your well, maybe we can tackle two questions I want to ask at once with this and. Uh... You know, a lot of the, a lot of your you say you, these poems are from years ago, but I just want to emphasize to people listening that like these all feel and are I think really contemporary in you know the problems that they that they address and you know I this is something I've said to my wife a few times I might have said it on here but oftentimes when I read any kind of like poetry that tackles political problems that gets published it feels like and this is not no fault of the poet usually because of the publishing process but. A lot of the time, it just feels like political poems are coming from you know a few years ago when when they're published. But your your work really doesn't feel that way. It feels like it's of the moment, despite the fact that you know so much has changed since you published this in January. And one poem that I think <laughs> we can talk about with regards to what, we, <clears throat> what you were just saying is uh, is um, cul-de-sac safari, which uh, yeah, which is which is I think maybe the longest poem in this in this book, even longer than maybe uh, the Time Unraveler's Travel Journal. But like, what yeah. was your process like for both both writing this poem and, and editing it and like uh, updating it a little bit for for this collection? Um, yeah, this was probably uh, Cold Sack Safari was one that was probably more of a personal. There are poems I consider very personal uh, reinforcement of my uh, criticism of, of white culture. Uh, that I'm like, okay, these these form the backbones of these these type of poems form the backbones of uh, uh these these thought poems form the backbone for the poems that could be thought that, that that might follow. So I think part of my thought was, you know, this whole thing won't be a poem, but you know, maybe I'll uh cobble poems from certain stanzas later on, uh, you know, maybe there's 10 poems in this one huge poem. And so there were, it was just kind of like a, a collection of ideas uh, under the guise of a manual, uh, a safety manual. And I, w I had no intention of including it in this collection until I had sent um, I was in a conversation with, uh, in messages with uh, Wendy Trevino. And I had sent it to her and she loved it. And she's like, oh, you've got to include that. So I sat back and looked at it again. I'm like, okay. Uh, and I showed it to some other people and they liked it. And I had to sit down and look at it again, not from, from their perspective or from the perspective of others. And, uh, you know, go forward with how I edited it because it, it's changed a lot. Uh, 
since I existed maybe a year ago, or definitely from five years ago or 10 years ago. I think this is um, about 10 years old, at least. Uh, it, it might be older than that, some of it, um, some of the parts of it. Uh, might go back 15 years, but um, but it's always been around, and it's just it was just how do I fine tune this into a poem to where it reads more like a poem and not necessarily like uh, list of gripes or uh, me thinking aloud to myself how do I how do I craft this? So I don't know. These things are hard when you when you have poems that are like ten pages long. Uh, it makes the editing process harder on yourself. You know, I, I have a friend who, who writes short poems, and you know, you know, they agonize over, you know, there's like seven lines, and they're agonizing over that. Uh, and I look at you know a poem that might be seventeen pages, and trying to have it work for that entirety is uh, frustrating at times and uh, rewarding when it works, rewarding. But then at some point, you know, probably months later, you'll, you'll look at it or I'll look at it and think, oh, my God, I can't believe this is so unfinished. <laughs> you know, it's already in print. But at that point, I'm like, oh, my God, I, I really need to go back and rework this. This is, this is horrendous uh, because it could go in so many different directions and so many different uh, uh, meanings and metaphors, or uh, and it's just the, the things that were left out always haunt me. It's like, oh, yeah, that does work there now. You know, I, I should have included that. And then I'll go back and look at the original that actually had the, those lines in it, and like, oh, I'm so glad I took that out. So it, the the process for the longer poems never really end. Um, I think my longest work is a piece called Tangerine Tubman, which was a like a 12 or 14 page chapbook um, about five years ago. That's going to be included in the, the third manuscript. Um, and I've played around with the format of that so, so much. Like I, I think the last time um, I did anything to that, it was to make it look like read like a short story because it's a, a, a long narrative poem. So. Um, yeah, well, with, well, just so people, I guess, have some context for the poem we're talking about, you know, it starts with, uh, you know, italics, welcome to your 2020 white safari safety manual. Yeah. And then, <clears throat> and then warning, social change happen. Social changes happen quickly without notice. Please refresh your browser every 15 seconds for updates. In case of a power outage, please open the channel to your local deity. And then it's like a series of, uh, you know, warnings, basically, or, you know, how-tos for how to do this uh, white safari, basically. Yeah. Um, With, oh, no. Go ahead. Were you going to say something? I'm just uh, acknowledging. Uh, okay. You know, what you're so go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And um, just like uh, a sample one would be something like number eight. The locals might not know to like you and might be militia-minded. Elmer Fudd owns a mansion in the yacht and is always hunting wabbits. And, you know, it's the series of warnings. And then I just wanted to ask you, too, about the, the conclusion of the poem, because, you know, you have, you know, it's a series of, you know, it's, it's in verse. And then the very last one, you break down into, um, like, a, I guess, more of a prose poem with 
uh, that begins and ends with remember, remember. Yeah. And I guess like I guess how was your decision like there to go to go to that to to go to that prose poem after uh, all these, these series of warnings? Yeah. Um, I don't. These are. I think I'm, I have a son that turns 18 next month, and uh, a lot of the work I write um, are written written for some future audience, uh, or or even some past audience. So I, I envision some of these as as a warning, as um, I don't think we, in this modern era, I don't think we uh, interact with our elders the way uh, previous generations interacted with theirs. So this is my attempt to interact with whoever might, you know, read this uh, at a later point. And a lot of these poems, uh, as warnings, kind of, they sat in a, uh, a folder when Barack Obama got elected that were like, they were considered, the file was called um, Poems Made Obsolete by an Obama Presidency, you know, because, you know, it, the politics had changed a little bit. Uh, we had just come out of eight years of Bush uh, when a lot of these poems were, were conceived. And the general mood was uh, for anyone writing uh, political protests and social commentary poems that centered on race. Um, it seemed like, you know, just gripes. You know, we, we were told, you know, you, you're rehashing the past. You're, uh, these things are, your point of view is outdated or archaic. So some of my, some of, I mean, some of these poems in this book and, and a lot of other poems I have coming out, you know, I, the criticism existed for those types of works that it was just you know your uh, times have progressed uh you have a black president now things are improving uh you know it will never get back to you're talking about an era that existed in the 50s or 60s or you know maybe even the 80s but we're more progressive now so a lot of these poems kind of set aside it's like let me work on you know more social commentary than necessarily political commentary. Uh, but I knew that these you know those those problems hadn't been resolved. Uh, when Trayvon Martin was killed, you know under you know Obama was president, he's even he couldn't uh, didn't have the uh, mandate that he felt to address police brutality. You know he he did pretty much what most black leadership does in this, you know, uh, pretty much beg or, you know, lodge a complaint for people to do better, you know, for white society to uh, hear our plea and to do, you know, what's right on their own. And this is the president of the United States, uh, you know, needing Congress and Senate to push him, you know, to do better, which he did. He never, he was never pushed to do better. Uh, he was never pushed, uh, even though he did address like gun violence, and you have you know Sandy Hook and all these things that happened. Uh, there was some addressing of that, but you know there was no uh, real uh, 
attempt to demil demilitarize the, the police or let alone talk about defunding or reforming the police. That, that was hardly on the table. So, and this was under a black president. So it's like, how, <laughs> how can we say that certain topics can't be talked about when certain racisms can't be addressed by, not even by a black president, without fear of him being attacked as um, favoring uh, the rights of black people. He had to you know, present himself to everyone and represent everyone in his mind. So uh, he didn't want to be the one to say, okay, I'm going to be the blackity black president uh, in this moment and push forward for change. Uh, so how could, if the president can't do that, if, if the racial atmosphere is such that the president himself, the black president of a, of a democratic nation, uh, can't address racism without fear of some type of backlash, then we're not as progressive as we, as we think we are. Uh, and those symptoms are still there. They're just, the circumstances may not be right uh, to expose them. But the time will come. I think that's just the society we live in. I think there's, it's always going to ebb and flow. Um, and sometimes we get happy when it's, not, when it's not as present. And we get relaxed. And then something happens. And then a series of something happens. And it's like, oh, no, our society is just as effed up as it's always been. You know, where have we been? Where are our poets at? Where are our artists at, you know, to address this for us? So, uh, and most artists are always out creating, especially political and social commentary type folks. They're always making this type of art, but it's not always um, ready to be heard by the people. It's just, you know, just the, the, the atmosphere, the political atmosphere has to be charged. For people to say, oh my God, this is still relevant. You know, this is still going on. Um, I guess bottom line, you know, support your outsider poets. <laughs> uh, they might seem like, you know, um, kooks or crackpots at times because they're always stuck on a certain subject, but it's always relevant. Uh, and I don't know. It's, um, it's, that's what I want to be, I think. I, I never wanted to be a politician. Um, but I always wanted to be like Jafar, you know, the, the advisor behind the throne uh, from uh, like Aladdin. I don't want to be the sultan. I don't want to be, I'm just a poet. But uh, my point of view, my perspective, my aesthetic, I think is under the conditions. I think is valid. It, it just needs for an agency to listen to them and uh, to to advance those things. And I think that's what all art does. Is it talks to power, it, uh, addresses those in power uh, with some sort of plea, and you know, hopefully it catches on to the masses, and they and the masses take that idea forward and you know do something constructive or destructive. You know whatever the case might. Demand, but the artist has to lay that that information out. Um, I think it's my role 
I'll never be, I don't think I'll ever be considered a great poet. Um, but I want people to say, yeah, but that poem really did uh, address uh, these same complaints that we've had since we first were brought to these shores uh, 401 years ago. Yeah, that's something we've yeah. talked well, I guess two things. That's something that that we talked about previously. But you know, the and I, I was talking about this with another poet who hopefully will come on in the future. But um, the like one one mode of poetry that really I think, uh, like especially political poetry that you're talking about, that is really I think powerful is the kind that has that you know sort of four hundred five hundred year view of history that you're talking about, but also you know, that, that very contemporary view as well, trying to take both the long view and the short view at the same time. And I feel like that you're, you're someone who's like constantly in that mode and constantly doing that. And like, I'd say like very, very successfully. And one, one thing that I want to want to ask you about, like with, with the elders and sort of the, the not having these poems published for so long too, is that, you know, there's a few poems in here to like millennials or black millennials or you know you you address things to to them and at certain points, and you know now that you have like the opportunity to say something like what what is that like and also like you know what is you know what is the message there for for black millennials or millennials or you know because again you you address I think both at, at different times. Uh, I don't know. It's not. I can't really say this for me to uh, to say because it's always going to change from you know perspective change from one generation to the next. And uh, particularly for uh, for for black people, I think there is such upheaval from one generation to the next. We're always working toward uh, the idea of freedom, or uh, which for us is to have the same privileges that white people have, uh, without any type of repercussion for indulging in those privileges. So the generation, the millennials that exist now and those under them, the ones who are out in the street <coughs> protesting, uh, how they view society is different than how I, I grew up viewing society, which was different than how my parents grew up viewing society. I think among a lot of black millennials, I think the assumption of equality is something they were born with that I wasn't necessarily that I had to that I had to grow into um, as a as a child growing up. I I think um, you know we all have a certain outlook on life as in in a, in our youth, in our pre adolescence. Uh, but for a lot of black folks that starts to change when you you become a preteen uh, and start entering adulthood. You start you know, it's controlled what you what you're told you can be and can't be. Um, I never thought I would see a black president in my lifetime. So that's obviously you know for the children of the millennials. Uh, you know, Obama's like the only president was the first president they'll. You know they'll know, uh, so that that idea exists for them. There's sort of freedom to exist, uh, to be exists for them. Um, 
that freedom, that privilege exists, that they can be truly, they can be, you know, whatever you want to be. I was told that as a child, but, you know, the, the resistance that you, that you get uh, growing up from society, from the same people now who are out here, um, you know, telling us that all lives matter or blue lives matter or whatever the anti-protest is, whatever the anti-blackness is. You know, these, this might be an older generation, uh, but some of this hate is coming from. But these were the adults, you know, when I was coming up. So they were the ones locked in their own ideas of who I was as a person, trying to explain to me who I could be or who I couldn't be. And, you know, having to process that. And with this resurgence, uh, I think that's what shocks a lot of people. I think uh, those who um, felt comfortable with Obama as president, I think there was, there was the initial shock to see that Trump actually had won his presidency uh, and his disbelief. And we, if you look at uh, the liberals out there now, there's, every day there seems to be this disbelief at the ignorance of this, of the president we have, at what he does and what he says and how he leads. And it's like, you, why are you still acting shocked by this? You know, this person has presented from day one who he was. You know, why, why, did, why is there an assumption that there was an act or that he would change or uh, that it wasn't real? Um, which is, is of itself a privilege to think that uh, this white man in, our, in the most esteemed position in America uh, is going to be anything less than honorable. You know, it's like <laughs> he has shown himself to be the most dishonorable person on the planet in, in, a, in a governmental role and since probably, you know, 50 years, you know. And uh, yet so many of us, you know, half the country is, is willing to overlook all of that and say that, you know, oh, it's not him. Uh, it's, it's the way he's being betrayed in the media. He, this, he's, he's an upstanding, honest person. You know, how, who in the world gets afforded that type of privilege is just, it's baffling. Uh, but well, the root of it is racism. Yeah, and let me say, too, that, like, one of the peril, like, one of the, par one of the many perils between the president and you know, like the Weimar Republic is, you know, the New York Times at the time said of Hitler, like, oh, I don't, I don't think this anti-Semitism stuff is actually real. It's just kind of an act for the, for the, for the rubes. And yeah, some people still seem to think that about Trump, as you're saying. And it's, uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's um, pretty bleak. So, um, you know, I'm shocked that, uh, I know there was a conversation on Twitter today about, you know, what's a bad poem or a good poem. Uh, I, I guess this is in the wake of, uh, what's his name? Uh, I think Michael Dickman in poetry found. Uh, yeah, it was Matthew. I, I honestly get them confused. I do too. I, Matthew and Michael. I was yeah. thinking it was Mike. Whichever one, this 30-page poem. I think that's kind of uh, sparked interest in the topic of race uh, for this cycle, for this 24-hour cycle. I think we're actually coming yeah. out of it now. <laughs> but, well, uh, let, me, well, let me tie this back to your book real quick. Like, you talk about the anti-blackness in, in, in the poetry world a few times. Like, mm -hmm. 
one of the one of the first lines that jumped out at me about that was uh quote, quote shakespeare sits up in his grave all line matter and later you have a poem uh like black poet persona poem where you i think discuss some of the the blackness that just runs rampant in the poetry world and you know poetry magazine among many of the other ones just constantly cannot stop doing it it seems yeah well it's, it's even hard for uh for many black folks to not to not do it i mean we're, we're raised in the same society that our white counterparts you know we're raised with the same ideals as children it's embedded in us as americans uh what separates our concern as we grow older is the fact that I am black and I am of that marginalized group. So it pretty much behooves me to, uh, for the safety of myself, for the, my own survival, that I learn to be anti-racist toward myself and my blackness. Uh, you know, the way that it, we are casually indoctrined into American society, it doesn't make room for being black. So you, you have to learn to accept yourself and go through this process, which, you know, our white counterparts, they don't have to feel that. So they, you know, they get their lessons from us. And, you know, at some point uh, when society feels safer, uh, there's this pushback, you know, like you don't have to always be, you know, this black all the time. <laughs> You know, uh, white lives matter too, and you know, no one is discrediting any of that. Of course, white lives matter. Uh, we're saying that our lives should matter on equal measure. It's not a competition, you know. So, um, the, the subject of race is so vast, it pours over every segment of society. Him and it, it, it's, it radiates from every position, you know, uh, to walking down the street, to getting a job, to owning a home, to medical treatment. Uh, there's almost no escape the side effects of racism. It's always there. I don't know how we actually progress, regardless of what our politics are, whether, you know, you feel comfortable in capitalism, whether you uh, long for communism, or, you know, socialism. At some point before we address any of that, if we're going to be uh, a whole society, we have to address uh, the issues we have with race and how we identify and how we uh, penalize and see just each other. We, we refuse to have those conversations. We protest, we change laws, but we still don't have the conversations or we, we don't enable our school systems to have the ability to address uh, those concerns and to teach our students effectively how to deal with race, how to deal with racism within themselves. So it, it kind of makes it a, a moot point, you know, to say, well, I'm. I favored Bernie or I favored uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, in this day and age where black folks feel so uh, left out of the equation of freedom and equality in America. 
you know, choosing a political leader is, seems uh, unimportant. You know, concerns the fact, you know, I contrasted the fact that we're dying in the streets, uh, that we're being singled out. So, uh, and I don't know where this is going. There's so many uh, avenues that, that our, our concerns lead to uh, that aren't being addressed by our leadership. So I don't, I don't know what the result of all this protesting in the street uh, is going to lead to if, uh, if at the end of the day, it just feels like our leadership is trying to wait us out. At some point, uh, the people in the streets will grow tired and will return home, or in, in the wake of a pandemic, we'll be able to return to work uh, and it will help the government, you know, kind of mitigate uh, our response to our outcries to, to anti-blackness. Um, but there are there are artists out there. There are poets and you know visual artists who continue to have this message. Uh, plenty of activists out there that continue to have the message. You know, our society is based on. Uh, being racist, uh, we will not be pushed aside. I don't know how we maintain that, how we make that type of response and systemic uh, to our growth as people. I don't know if it's possible in America now. We, I, I tell people we've grown, we've gone from being diverse to being divergent. You know, there, I don't know how we reconcile the far right and the far left into a into a, a civil democratic process just doesn't seem to be able to exist anymore. This any any type of bipartisanship is all I've got to have in my way or no way, especially on the right. How how do you uh, indoctrinate or un or remove the doctrination of of people who are opposed to your existence as a free people. 100 million people in America are thoroughly convinced that uh, their anger you know, toward Black people and our responses to oppression, they believe their uh, perspectives are valid. How do you tell them, no, it really isn't, uh, and do so in a way that uh, it you know convinces them that you're no threat to them. That allowing uh, my freedom in no way prohibits the freedoms they have for themselves. I don't. We. I don't know. We we have a, we have an immature, infantile uh, system of government and education. It'll take trillions of dollars thrown into the process to correct it. It's just not something that's going to be, that's going to happen uh, organically. Just, it's not possible. The, the far right feel under attack. You know, we're taking down, you know, their statues and their flags and you know, all the symbols that they hold dear. Um, you know, they're not going to be forgiving, you know, because of that. They're not going to turn around and, and say, oh, you're right. Uh, my symbols of hate, I can see how you, you saw it that way, you know, my bad. You know, they're, they're, they're not taking it that way. 
Civil War was over 150 years ago. And still, there, you know, we have more people, you know, we have more people who are in favor of uh, the rights of the South today than there were actually people in the South, you know, 200 years ago. So it's, it's grown. You know, the South has risen. It never, it never did fall. There was a thing, you know, the South will rise again. But it hasn't gone anywhere. It still has always existed. And the more freedoms that, that we as black people seem, seem to have uh, in the mainstream, the more vocal they become in attacking the, our ascension into, uh, into that mainstream. How do we fight that? I don't know that. I don't think a poem would, they're not going to read this book. Those who are opposed to me will not read this book. Uh, those opposed to the idea of me will not read this book. They have no reason to. Uh, they'll never leave, you know, Fox News or whatever it is uh, they're getting their information from. You know, that's their world. So how, how, do, how does this book break into uh, that arena? Uh, you know, I guess my idea, my hope is that, uh, you know, white Americans read this and uh, take this information with them to, to, they're the ones that have access, the most access to, you know, their cousins who are the most racist, those most likely to oppose me. So hopefully they take this information that, that's been written and they take that, use it to address their, you know, their cousin. I hope that black folks read this and they take it to inform uh, some of the decisions we make out in the streets about how we protect and make systemic our own identities to ourselves and to the world. So there is no simple answer and, you know, I, in, in this answer I've given, which has been all over the map. You know, I don't. I personally don't advocate for like any one particular direction. Uh, it's multifaceted in our response to society's ills. Uh, you know, wherever you are in life, you know, pick a spot and you know stand your ground there. You know, make yourself known. It's all attacking the same, you know, system uh, that doesn't favor us, that ignores us. Uh, at best, um, so I don't. Uh, forgive me for this uh, long-winded. Uh, I this should this should be an essay. Uh, <laughs> no, no, you're trying you're trying to say a lot about. Uh, you you're taking on a big topic. I think is the way to put it. It is. I've always wanted to be a teacher, so that was my ideal back when I was younger. That I would be a history teacher or sociology or something, and. Uh, every now and then, I, you know, someone will ask something, you know, that seems like there should be a short answer for that. Uh, you know, write more poetry, uh, protest more in the streets. Uh, but there is no e easy answer for how we deal with each other, uh, you know, in, in political terms when, uh, you know, when policies have pitted us against each other. There's no easy answer for that uh, because you have so many levels of intelligence and ignorance to try to address, and you can't do it all at once. Um, 
it can't be pick and choose. It can't be uh, states' rights, you know, where uh, Texas is allowed to educate its people differently in terms of race or history than Kentucky or Florida or New York or someplace. It has to be a concentrated effort, you know, across the board. This is how we're going to deal with and stamp out inequality in America. And we, we have to be open to the idea that uh, that our politics might have to change. Maybe that can't be done in how we, we know capitalism to exist. You know, maybe, you know, maybe it might take a whole different dynamic. Uh, we have to be open to that. And at the end of the day, our best government should, should, should be our, you know, what, what our aim is and not you know, trying to maintain this mythology of what our nation is because that doesn't really exist. It never exists. <clears throat> you know, even among the poor whites out here who uh, are the most vocal about keeping, you know, being on the side of government, uh, this same government didn't include you. <laughs> you know, when, when America was making itself great, you know, poor whites were were uh, you know, had no right. You know, they weren't alone. weren't allowed to own land. They didn't hold positions of authority in society. So, uh, the system is you know the system that they advocate for uh, in some past mythology, uh, in some romanticism of greatness, uh, didn't include them. But yet they fight hard, the hardest for it today so it's uh how do you address that yeah and like just one thing you're talking about like you know the the far like what we do about the far right like you know at the protest you see occasionally the guys in the floral print shirts and the body armor like armed to the teeth the boogaloo boys and they're out there they're out there like thinking saying like literally just saying on the internet like oh you know a second civil war would be pretty cool guys and like what well, i mean like you're saying like what do you do when so many people are thinking like that, and I gotta say, and I also gotta tie this too to the to the very very last line in the book. I referenced this poem at the at the beginning. It, it was um, protoplasmic phrenology, and you end the book with the with the phrase uh, with the sentence, um, but decidedly not th- the threat you're told to think. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it seems to be that I mean to some extent that's what you're talking about right now. Yeah, well, those are those are you know uh, in my mind. I as far as my work goes, as far as my art, there's a certain sense of romanticism, uh, ideals that uh, that last for you know centuries. You know, I think a lot of uh, white privilege as it exists today is based on the romanticisms of you know European artists. Uh, when it comes to standards of beauty. Well, maybe just real quick, one, I think you, you're tackling, among other things, you're tackling that in the poem, the poem about Percy Shelley, too. Yeah. Yeah, which is another one yeah. of the long poems in this collection. That, uh, I've been outed as anti-establishment or anti-institutional poet here lately, um, which I've never really made that a secret. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, the original name of that poem, it's called you know, it's Bish Please is the name of it now. And 
originally it was uh, I wanted it to be, uh, you know, let's kill Merwin. Uh, Merwin hadn't passed away at the time this was was written. <laughs> oh no! So, so, so people, you know, I, and I love Merwin's work. I'm not a, opposed to him, but the standard that that that's applied to him and how he, uh, you know, is basically uh, this great symbolism for white poetry, uh, especially white male poetry. Uh, yeah, like of the Matthew or Michael Dickman variety, you could say. Yeah, yeah you, I wanted to kill this idea that, that that alone is a standard, you know, because, uh, you know, there is no black romanticism that is ever made a standard in American society or in Western society. Uh, so, you know, there's, I, I try to, my work pretends that that wasn't the case. I always, there's an assumption that black romanticism existed. Uh, it exists within my work. And that becomes the standard for the privileges of whatever the characters are in my book. They, the platform, the soapbox they stand on is this, uh, you know, this pedestal of romanticism of blackness. And every word is it juxtaposes itself to what we're told is a standard that exists today. So, uh, and I have nothing against uh, Percy Shelley or any, you know, Robert Frost or Zeus, or but that that they're not given favor in my poem. They're burdens in my poems because I'm told over and over that if you want to be a good poet, you, you have to enshrine uh, these symbols of white romanticism uh, in your work somehow. Uh, that we should write, why don't you write you know, nature poems, Ronald? <laughs> well, my relationship as an African-American in nature is different than your relationship because I was made to be indentured you know, to the earth for, for the benefit of others. We weren't allowed to explore it. You know, there is no, no, uh, you know, let's get lost in the woods. We don't have any John Muir's in our history who you know, allowed them to exist freely to explore. So how we come into nature is different, you know. Uh, you know, for some, you know, a poplar tree is, a, you know, a sign of beauty, you know, for, for others. Uh, that's nature being weaponized against us. You know, we, you know, we were hung from from popular trees. So, and you, know, you and you write about this, I think, in um the poem about Adobin. Or yeah, how do you say? Yeah, that uh, I tell I've written. I tell people in in, in thirty five years I've written. Uh, ten great poems and a, you know a thousand versions of each poem. You know, um, but yeah, these are common things for me. These are are ideas that, that I would like to see systemic in black art uh, to be you know uh, you know for Kilimanjaro to be mentioned uh, in the same breath. It's like Mount Olympus. You know what? Um, and that's the equality of civilization when uh, the stories and fables and mythologies of another culture 
are accepted on equal measures with you know the ones that exists within someone else's culture you know then it becomes easier to uh accept the differences of someone else uh, you know to have um you know white kids you know dress up as black panther for halloween and then you know uh proudly walk around in a maga hat you know how do you how do you marry those that, that concept you know it's uh you know it's surreal but there there has to be a legitimate respect for the source material not for uh just how you perceive you know some aspect of uh identity or something you have to you have to respect the culture that these things come from you just can't say that you know what black panther or something is that well that's my black friend i know them i trust them you you have to respect the the idea of where it comes from and why and uh you have to find the art and the traditions that uh reinforce uh that that culture you just can't vilify an entire culture of people and expect that to not have bad, you know, repercussions. Uh, so, you know, that's that that's the plea within in all my art. Uh, my creations are just as valid as your creations. Uh, I'm not asking you to, you know, enshrine them over yours, but allow me to enshrine them for myself without saying. Uh, that's that I'm being contrary, which is what a lot of us are told uh, when we criticize white, you know, culture or white aesthetics. You know, we're told you know, we're being contrary when we say Black Lives Matter. You know, we're told we're being contrary to American citizenship. <laughs> it's like no, we we are super citizens. You know, we're trying to completely, uh, fully develop the idea of citizenship because it's, it's impartial right now. Or not impartial, it's, it, it's segmented. Uh, we're trying to round it out to its fullest. When we say Black Lives Matter, it's not, you know, just to focus on the blackness to say that uh, citizenship is, is indeed for all people equally. Uh, and, you know, if I'm doing my work right, then, you know, people walk away with that. You know, he's, even when I'm angry in my work, it, it's not necessarily hateful. Uh, it's not entirely disrespectful of anyone else's culture. It doesn't have to be uh, strong at the expense of someone else be, being made to feel weak. It just says, this is what I value. Society tells me to value this, but I, I value this is where I come from. So I have to value that because otherwise I'm walking around with this deep-rooted idea that where I come from is not as valid as any, any place else. Uh, <clears throat> and no one should ever experience that. Wherever you come from, you should feel like my 
my aesthetic is valid because it's valid to my people. And it's not a competition. Uh, it's not here to replace anything that exists. It's here to complement and exist side by side with, uh, which is all the, you know, the, you know, Black Lives Matter and uh, Harlem Renaissance and, you know, Black Arts Movement and uh, abolition, period. It's all just the same. You know, Black people are just as equal as anyone else. Well, maybe just to, to backtrack for a sec to something we were talking about before with, uh, you know, whether, whether it's uh, the Second Civil War or all the, all the, you know, contradictions in American society. Someone whose work you, you, I think, returned to a few times in this, and I don't think we've talked about her in past episodes. Um, you know, you have a couple poems either titled after work by Octavia Butler or mentions Octavia Butler. So I guess, yeah. like, yeah, I guess, well, like, what do you see as, like, I guess the importance of Octavia Butler, just to start things off generally? Uh, well, that's a personal um, aesthetic. Like, I'm, there's this uh, push... Uh, the genre of Af uh, Afrocentricity uh, or Afrofuturism uh, is, is, is a popular art form now. Uh, or, you know, Blacks in speculative fiction, um, which I'm, I think uh, it stems from my belief that, you know, we talk about uh, dystopia. <laughs> we talk about Armageddon or Apocalypse. And, you know, and for me, from, from a black perspective, you know, slavery is that we, we're living in the dystopian future. We've, we've been living in it for us for over 400 years now. Uh, this is the aftermath. You, you know, you'll see uh, what's the movie District 9 or whatever it might be where aliens have invaded and they're taking over the world. And um, yeah, it's like 20 movies in the last five years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Even with uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, uh, that was made into a movie. Yeah, that's a good. So you one. have all these, you know, all these. Uh, how life is after apocalypse? We we've been that's been our story for four hundred years. So there's always uh, to resist that narrative. Uh, in itself, makes our lives speculative. Uh, it, you know, we're we're sitting, we're trying to recreate and tell people that we are free, in a system that no longer says. Uh, based on the most far-fetched ideology, says that, uh, no, you're not really human, <laughs> you know. Uh, like, how is, how is that possible? How can, of course I'm human. I'm, I'm as human as anyone else. I have you know, blood and lungs and heart and liver and, you know, everything else. Well, how, how, how could I ever be anything less than human? But that's what, you know, the... Um, the transatlantic slave trade did it um told us we were soulless beasts you know for you know 400 years or 300 years and i always tell people like that was the the biggest trick bag was uh the invention of soul because we were told we were soulless for so long we weren't human uh, we were three-fifths human uh god didn't consider us as equal to you know to white people uh, we had no spirits. Our spirits were different. And then as soon as emancipation hit uh, and we asked for freedom, we asked for you know, the so-called 40 acres and the mule uh, reparations. Uh, there was a considered, you know, there were steps being made for that. And then, you know, the South 
and and commerce and capitalism kind of said, well, wait a minute, uh, we're not ready to to do all that just yet. Um, let's give black people a soul. <laughs> so, so all of a sudden, we went from being soulless beasts to being, uh, you know, oh my God, your soul, you, you know, to have endured what you what you what you've gone through, uh, required a tremendous amount of soul. Your music is so soulful. You're, you're, you you make soul food. You dance so soulfully. So now we have an abundance, you know, of soul. You know, after emancipation, which you know before that, uh, it was argued that we didn't have soul. So we were paid in that recognition. Uh, we weren't given freedom, but we were told we were soulful, and that's been the whole narrative since. It's like uh, every time that uh, we try to uh, garner some aspect of uh, leadership or authority or equality. Uh, we're always made to honor how soulful we are, and that keeps us nonviolent. And you know, it's like a trick. It's like you know, you know, Gandhi or King or whoever. All these nonviolent uh, folks are. They're thrown at us as you know, as being emblematic for how you push forward doing, under oppression. Um, so I don't like the word soul. I don't like the concept of it. Like we all have a soul. <laughs> what, what, what makes mine so much more special? Why do we keep talking about uh, the souls of black folks? <laughs> why, why is that uh, you know, just the focus of our narrative when I'm asking to be free, when I'm asking for equality? You know, don't remind me that, you know, that I can jump higher, you know, or carry a note longer, or whatever the whatever the uh, the the trope is that that's being, you know, pushed on me. I don't, I don't, I don't strive for greatness. I just want to die humble, you know, a humble life. I don't want to be told that I cook well. You know, just I just want to be free. I just want to to not be to not be remembered at all. Uh, uh, for me personally, would be this that I, I don't I don't want to be like, oh yeah, he was a rabble rouser. He was this, that, and the other. I just want to be a a, a humble person, uh, free to exist like anyone else, free to be mediocre. You know. Uh, and not have that reflect on who I was as a as a black person, you know. Uh, it's like what was it, Chris Rock? He you know, said that uh, here he is, like the most successful, you know, black comedians to ever exist, uh, making you know millions of dollars living in, in this gated community, and you know he's surrounded by average people, average white people, with you know doctors and lawyers and. Just some of the most everyday, uh, uh, you know, people doing just average job. Here he is. He had to be the epitome of, you know, black comedy to even be able to afford to get into this uh, casual, uh, everyday society or neighborhood. You know, I I would like for my child to be a uh, a dentist and live in that neighborhood and not have to be great and not have to be the best at anything. 
you know, to be able to enjoy that neighborhood. So, I don't know. It's, uh, we, I don't think we'll ever reach that because our education system is just so messed up. It won't allow us to think of that, you know, to even conceive that as a possibility that that me in, in my averageness is just my averageness is just as equal as anyone else's. I don't want to have to be great. I don't want to be Michael Jordan or uh, you know Skip Gates. You know none of those things are guarantees that I'll be free just because I'm wealthy as a black man. I just want to be free. You know, I just want to be left alone, which is the greatest privilege of all. You know just to be able to walk down the street and be invisible. Well, I think, um, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, well, in a poem for Freddie Gray in the city of Baltimore, I think you come at this yeah. from a, from a different angle when you say like, uh, uh, what if consecration has a black body? Would you still sacrifice your blue eyed virgins? And yeah, it does seem like, <laughs> I think what you're getting at is, uh, you know, there it, there is no like because of the anti-blackness of society. There is no way that 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 ever would be accepted. Yeah, it's just uh, we're not romanticized in that way. Um, you know, I, us being a, when we owned the bookstore. You know, we had to be. You know, our white patrons would come into our store and just assume, oh, you're a black bookstore. <laughs> no, we we do have books by black authors. Yes. Uh, we are black owned, but we're a bookstore. You know, what were you looking for? They would ask something like, oh, yeah, that's over, you know, on aisle 12 or whatever it is, you know, that, uh, and people would express shock. Like, oh, you, you, you know who, you know, Cormac McCarthy is or you like Merwin? <laughs> you know, so um, there's always this under, you know, race underscores everything in America. But only is uh, subjective, or uh, I guess when when whites are are the focus, and it becomes ob only objective when it, when when black ownership is involved. It's like it has, oh, you, you're bringing politics into this. Like, no, I'm I'm a I, just, I own a bookstore. I'm not trying to be political. I'm just trying to sell books and make a living. Uh, so I think, you know, there was, uh, you know, the name of our store was Wild Fig. It's like, you know, you don't, uh, you don't want to call yourself the Black Fig? Or <laughs> why, you know, why do I have to uh, let you know before you step into my store, you know, who I am as a person? If you're out looking for a book and you see a bookstore, you should just be like, oh, it's a bookstore. Let me stop in. You shouldn't, you know, immediately start assuming, you know, politics into the store I run just because I'm black. You shouldn't see it and be like, oh, uh, Wild Fig owned by black people shouldn't be on the, the marquee of my store. <laughs> um, it's, it's just a bookstore. Whatever you're looking for, I'm sure we have it, uh, regardless of who you are as a person. But I mean, those are things that we have to fight against. Um, and I don't know how to get white people to uh, always address their own internal racism, which is why, you know, on occasion I have you know, mentioned that I'm just 
I'm just as embedded in racism as y'all are. If I have to fight it, then I know you have to fight it. You know, it's not uh, some of my most liberal white friends have been offended. Uh, and I tell them, I'm like, no, you're probably just as racist as anyone else. You're a good person, I'm not saying. But I know that I have racism. Uh, I, I fight racism within myself. So I just find it hard to believe that, you know, uh, I, you know I, I'm a black man fighting not to be racist against myself. There's got to be some aspect within you as a white person that you probably don't even see as a blind side where racism exists uh, because for whatever reason, those things are comfortable to you. That setting is comfortable. And it's not, it doesn't feel controversial. Uh, and you're comforted by it. So you don't see the pitfalls of whatever that particular environment or situation is. But we all have them, and we all have to work toward bettering ourselves. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily make you a bad person to admit, yeah, I'm, I have prejudices. I, have, I see where I'm racist in, in these areas. Uh, I need to overcome that you know, in this society, for this society to work uh, to its best advantage for everyone. We all have to continually, continually work uh, at being anti-black, anti uh, which is the baseline for you know, power and authority in America. So you, you can't chase the American dream uh, and not address uh, race on some level, because it's, it's going to be there. It's going to pop up. Uh, yeah, well, I think I just know. real quick, I think one, one, one of the lines that really jumped out at me towards this end was, uh, when's the last day you weren't force-fed enlightenment? And, yeah, yeah I, I think that's really says, this often happens on this podcast, where, you know, it really says, you know, what you're trying to say just in one line. Yeah. Uh, and people, that's, the, that's the, the pushback that um, the right has. This idea of political correctness uh, is always there because you know racism is always prevalent on some level, uh, and to address it, it is it's overwhelming at times to to sit back and think of the the enormity of uh, well with all that encompasses. So, you know, at some point your privilege kicks in, and it's like, well, I'm I've done that. I'm tired of that now. Let's Let's move on to something pleasant. Let's talk about cats and dogs and poems or how deep the ocean is or how blue the sky is. Let's, let's move on. Uh, and that's a luxury that everyone doesn't necessarily have. I would love to be in a society where I didn't have to talk about, you know, my defense of being black. But we're not there yet. I don't know if we'll ever be. So yeah. go ahead. Oh, just real quick. I think I think you meant. I think you mentioned this poem on a previous time we recorded. Uh, you, I think maybe it was one you read at a reading about how you don't really like poetry readings per se. It's, it's the very first mm -hmm. poem in the collection, popular poem with sharp title, and yeah. I think you know that's that's something you're getting at here, where you know, uh, you know, certain poems or there's an ex expectation about what you're going to write about, and those will mm -hmm. be the poems that that people share. As you, yeah. as you end end with, I find it funny. I for some reason, um, uh, Maggie Smith on Twitter has I'm, I'm like blocked, 
uh, from her because I think I said I don't know why. I think I, I think I think I made a comment a while while back that I said something where I'll never be quoted by Maggie Smith, you know, as my, as an inspirational poem. You know, well, never I mean, you, <laughs> she's proving it true with that one. <laughs> exactly. So uh, I just found it out like a week, well, about yeah, about a week and a half ago. I just. Uh, uh, I saw a conversation and somebody mentioned Maggie Smith and I saw, you know, how you see that this tweet is unavailable to you or whatever. So I was like, what is, uh, is this? Um, am I blocked by Maggie Smith? <laughs> so, you know, sure enough, I was after I did the, you know, pulled up her name. I'm like, oh, I can't see this. And I don't know if it was something intentional or if it's just like a one button, like, oh, I don't, anyone who doesn't follow me, I'm just going to automatically, automatically block. Maybe that's what it is, but it just, I just found it odd and strange. Uh, and I'm, I don't know, I probably found a sense of pride in it. Like, oh, shit, I'm, <laughs> Maggie Smith blocked me, yay. You know, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's um, this standard uh, that we have to write toward uh, to be accepted. Even a lot of the black poets who are popular. Uh, and I enjoy their work. A lot of it seems popular because um, it's taken their rage and made it a commodity uh, for white consumption. So, uh, you know, it's it's written in a way where it's not threatening. It's not, you know, it's not demanding. It's it's more of a plea, like you know, uh, especially the uh, the confessional poets who talk about. You know, experiences in their lives of being stopped or being harassed or whatever it might be. Uh, a lot of those poems don't ask society to change. You know how it views it. It, it just it makes it makes this an individual circumstance. Like oh, how poor, uh, how pitiful it was of you to be treated this way, and you get you know a flood of compassion uh, for having written that. Um, so your pain has been exposed, but you know there. If if you're wanting to change society with that, it it wasn't worded ways uh, to make people address that within themselves or address that within uh, their neighbors. Um, like my poem "Bus Fare for a Valkyrie," you know, the original poem for that was uh, a poet in favor of war. Uh, you know, which I've sat back and watched society. And you know, we live in a very violent. How can I write, you know, poems about gardens uh, when you know police are shooting my children in parks on swings? You know, uh, I think you know something more is demanded of us as human beings than to sit back and look for, uh, you know, the positives in life uh, when such negative things and cruelties are being done to us. Um, and I don't think enough poets, or at least enough, there are plenty of poets out there who write about this, but, you know, we are outsider poets. We're not, you know, we're, uh, unless we write in a certain way, uh, we're probably not going to be lauded, you know, by the institution, those who are the gatekeepers for uh, what a good poem is. You know, they're not going to be the ones to, you know, to, to champion us. It's like I remind. I used to be a cashier at Kroger's years ago. It's one of one of my earlier jobs, and 
uh, there was a woman who came through my line. Um, she had uh, two small kids. I don't know if they were twins, but they were about the same age, a boy and a girl. And this was uh, during a time when uh, Spike Lee's uh, Do the Right Thing had, had been out. So that whole summer, uh, the EU song, Doing, Doing the Butt, uh, was a very popular song uh, for that whole summer. It was just like a mega hit. <laughs> so the little girls in the, in the cart, uh, in, the, in the basket, uh, you know, dancing and singing this song. And, and the boy is outside the cart. He's got a cowboy hat on. And and these kids, you know, they're they're black. The family's black. Um, but the boy has a, a toy gun, and he is just, you know, every every pull of the trigger, he's blowing my head off. He's just like bang, 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 shooting me. Uh, the mother leans over to me and expresses uh, such embarrassment, forgives, like, oh, please forgive my daughter for singing this song, and you know. Uh, and dancing the way she is, or she's so embarrassing. And I'm thinking, with you know, she's not the threat to me at all. This, this, your son is sitting here blowing my head off, <laughs> you know, and she doesn't address that at all. Uh, so th those are things in society that may not necessarily play in the race, but it's these things that uh, these tropes and these stereotypes we have about each other as people. You know what's acceptable behavior and what's not, and how we respond to these things. You know, those are the things we're always having to address. It's like, uh, yeah, if you if you find disfavor with your daughter, you know, dancing and maybe singing a song that could be considered lewd, I can understand your your concern for that. But please, have this good, the what's more likely to affect me is the you know the negativity your son has of my existence by by viewing me as the enemy somehow, you know, how, please, if you're going to address either of, either of those things on my behalf, you know, I'd much rather you address, you know, your son uh, before he grows up and becomes a cop or alderman or something, you know, you know, with some type of preconceived uh, notion in his head about, about violence and what, when, when it's acceptable to use it. I'd, I'd, mother, I'd, I'd rather you much uh, address that than, you know, if you're going to uh, oversee any activity. So those are things we have to do as people. We have to be able to address uh, the actual concerns that we have for the safety of each other, for the protection of each other. On my Facebook page, uh, I think it was something in a memory that uh, came up Five years ago today, there was a um, this satire video of uh, a group of white men in a, like a in an apple in a in a Cracker Barrel or some some restaurant, <clears throat> and uh, it was like the first day of like open carry being passed. You, know, you could you know walk around wherever the state was, uh, you know, freely brandishing your gun. Uh, and it was under the context of uh, good guys with guns, which was the big thing a few years ago uh, for a second, second uh, amendment rights folks were, uh, if a good guy with a gun was there, you know, then that bad guy could have been put down. So you have all these white guys are pulling their guns out at each other 
uh, each proclaiming to be the good guy with the gun. They're having this debate about, you know, I'm the good guy with the gun. They're like, no, I'm the good guy with the gun. You. So uh, uh, I just found that ironic. And, it, and the, the, the one person in the whole store that in, in the video who didn't have a gun, uh, when the police show up, is a black guy. He's the one that gets arrested, you know, like, you know. Uh, he's just, you know, an innocent bystander. So it, it just amazed me how quickly we've gone from this narrative of even this pretense of a, of a good guy with the gun to uh, the right wing now saying, uh, in response to defund the police, you know, they're saying, uh, you know, you don't want to see me in your neighborhood if I've got if I if if I'm going to be the law. You're not going to like it if I keep the law. And I'm like, what happened to the good guy with the gun thing? I thought you were going to, you know, I thought that was the whole thing of your Second Amendment rights was to protect the community. And now you're saying that if I call you for help because we've defunded the police, that your intent is to treat us worse than the police would have treated us to teach us a lesson, you know, about, you know, well, if you hadn't defunded the police, you, you wouldn't have to pull up with me. <laughs> and, you know, well, you know, we defunded the police, you know, that's our call because of the way they're treating us. And you're going to come in and treat us the same way, then you don't see the similarities and the irony in it. So it's just this whole, how this whole narrative circles around for every so years, uh, so many years from uh, one aspect, one perspective to the other. It all still informs racism. It all still informs anti-blackness. But, you know, things change with time. The way we communicate with, e with each other changes with time, uh, but yet the meaning still remains the same. And I, I think we need work. What I try to do in my work is try to always keep that same thread and no matter what time we're living in, uh, the basis of that is still there. Like, I have a, a poem that I'm working on for the next collection that, uh, the one I probably spent the most time on is a collection, is a poem called uh, uh, Talentia Nigger and Other Family Outings, which is also an old poem. It's, you know, it was probably you know, 20 years old, this poem. And, uh, and it, it speaks from, it's almost like a persona poem for a white lynch mob. Um, so having to try to um, balance that to where it represents, you know, like the old time photos of lynchings that exist uh, to uh, how, you know, black people are hunted now, uh, you know, you know, thinking of Atlanta and uh, some of the lynchings that have gone on in California over the past three weeks or so. Uh, you know, to write a poem that that feels a place equally a place uh, 60 years ago or 70 years ago uh, as it does in today's modern setting. That's, you know, that's the balance. You know, there's always going to be racism. There's always going to be attack on the black body. Uh, how do I write a poem that uh, that tries its best to transcend whatever the era is? Um, you know, that's, that's my approach when it comes to writing. I, 
when it comes to editing, especially, it's like, I don't want this poem to be, I don't want to look back and say, uh, this poem is dated. Uh, it mentions Ronald Reagan. So this, this poem was specifically written for the eighties. So it, you know, that's where it belongs. Uh, it doesn't belong into this. It's an amusing read, but it doesn't belong in, in these times. I, I try to make sure that no matter where, what era, you know, we live in, no matter what, how we change from one generation to the next, I hope to capture the universal stereotypes or, you know, the beliefs or whatever it is that exists in us as people. I hope to always be able to have that, you know, be present. So, um, yeah. And what I was going to say too, just like, you know, good guys with guns or how like this country got colonized. And also like, just for the people listening, uh, I just want to maybe read a bit of bus fare for a Valkyrie real quick just so like people have the context you know you start with them a uh, question where are the brazen poems lashing apocryphal authorities with fire and countermeasures to police brutality and then i think relevant to what you're talking about a little earlier you also ask in the same poem uh how does the code switching poet decry existential nihilism without jeopardizing a genius grant and yeah i just wanted to to highlight those lines for people listening so they they have some reference there <laughs> uh, but yeah, no. What were you gonna say? Oh, I'm never gonna win the genius grant. I would love, <clears throat> I would love to win like a Pulitzer Prize or Nobel, but that's that's probably not gonna happen. I don't. I think uh, I don't write lightly. I, you know, my poems are heavy. I try to make. I like. I like the clunkiness of my poems. I, I'm told that I I work against their aesthetic. You know, uh, I I read the works of others, and I see what makes them popular. Uh, I just can't write that way. I would love to be able to write that way for acceptance or whatever it might be. But I take pride in, I'm going to take the clunkiest poem. I'm going to take the, the, some of the hardest. I, I have a mush mouth. So when I read some of my own work, uh, you know, I'll trip and stumble over you know, some of the words. They, they might read better than how they sound coming out of my mouth. Like when you just read that line, I'm like, oh my God, that sounds amazing. <laughs> you, know, where, you know, I would dread, I would dread having to read that on the mic and be like, oh, I need a second take because that didn't come out right. Uh, well, well, real so, quick, uh, that just reminded me what something Wendy had said on here, where she she said like, you know, I basically she said that I was I'm deliberately trying to make my poems worse from an MFA perspective, basically. Yes. <laughs> so, and that's my approach. It's like uh, in. in uh, and that goes back to the, the conversation of the day of a bad poem or a good poem is, you know, really it's no such thing. It's just whose perspective or whose aesthetic are you basing their work on? And uh, that's the only thing that determines whether the work is bad or not. It's like if, if you go into it saying that, you know, what I learned at MFA is the proper way to write a poem, then, you've, then everything that's against that aesthetic that you learned is by nature a bad poem, even if it's a good, if it was well written and sounds good. So I try to write, uh, you know, poems that would never work at the, at the MFA, you know, uh, which I don't you know. I can only guess 
and I, I have no education as a as a poet or as a writer. Uh, you know, I've read a lot of poems. I've studied, you know, certain essays or how tos or whatever. But but I know these are poems that they're they're not common. They don't read. They they have too many words in them. They too have many unnecessary words. And that's the part of me that wanted to be a teacher. You know, I wanted to be a historian. Uh, you know, having their say, like, yeah, this, this, all, this has to be said. This can't be left up to interpretation. I have to say this directly in a way uh, in which uh, it's recognized as poetry. But fundamentally, it has to, there can be no question who is challenging or why. Um, the part of me going back to the Octavia Butler. Uh, I do write some very uh, surreal poems uh, that that, um, that people have questioned. You know, I've tried to, you know, I would print them online, and you know, people don't know what to make of it. You know, it's like you, you know, I, yeah, it's a sci-fi theme or whatever, but I don't, you know, what message? They're looking for something political. And it might be there, but it might only be that only I can recognize it because the way things are phrased in my mind or uh, the very obscure references uh, that might be listed. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard to be a uh, speculative writer uh, of, of poetry of, of, and be anti-Black at the same time. Uh, but for the most part, my poems have to, they can't be, they can't leave anything up to the imagination. I just refuse that. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a luxury to have, uh, hoping that someone will fill in the blank. Uh, but my work, you know, uh, Black Liberation, for the most part, is too urgent for me to leave that up to chance. So, so I understand when people say that, you know, you could have said this differently, uh, that you could have said this could have had more of a metaphor uh, in this spot. I'm like, yeah, I could have. Uh, and you would have liked it more. But I had, I had some point, I, my work has to speak more directly, you know, to you as a person, not just to you as, uh, as a privilege or as a romanticism. It has, to, it has to take you by the hand and say, uh, yeah, this might be a pleasant read on some level, but let's not forget, you know, why I brought you here to begin with. This, there is something very serious going on in our society. I can't leave it up to chance that you'll walk away from my poem, uh, knowing exactly what I meant. And I think that's that's where black poems are tend tend to be accepted the most when they leave stuff up to the imagination. And critics feel like it empowers the critic to feel like they've read something ethereal or of the same aesthetic, of the same equality of, of all the greats of the past. They've left stuff up to the imagination. It's the notes you didn't, you don't hear <laughs> in jazz music. They say that that matters the most. Uh, no, you I, no, I, I have emphasis on the notes you're going to hear in in my poems on the words you're going to hear, these are very deliberate, they're very heavy, they're very direct. Uh, hopefully I can write something poetic in between those lines, but 
but I have a uh, specificity, definitive uh, approach or direction or destination. Uh, I want and when you finish reading this poem, I want you to be like, okay, I've arrived exactly where this poet wanted me to be in at the end of this poem. I just can't leave that up to chance. I would love to be able to. I don't feel like I have that uh, that privilege as a black poet to say, okay, I've written. I've written this very metaphorical poem. I hope they don't equate what I'm saying to to a childhood. You know, it's supposed to represent uh, the death of blackness in America. I don't want someone to say and come back and say, "Oh yeah, it reminded me of my childhood growing up in Maine, eating oysters." And I go, "Well, you completely missed the point." And that was my fault if I let that happen. You know, what am I writing for? You know, so. Right. And I think maybe like a, like a really succinct example of this in the book was um, a small poem to let you know the end is near, where it's just just to read it. It's it's pretty short as the title says. um, It goes, enjoy the stillness, this serene comfort where thick, luscious moss grows over the scars on our backs the wounds of which are now a modern currency. And I think that, you know, is a pretty good, uh, a short, as you say, a small uh, demonstration of, I guess, what you're talking about there. I appreciate you being well-read in this book. Uh, I'm like, oh, yeah, let me, I'm having to skip back and forth, uh, you know, trying to find those things. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I'm, I'm just starting to feel like uh, in the past two or three weeks, I've received uh, some pretty good feedback in emails and messages of people who read my work. I'm, I'm sure it's uh, really good. <laughs> it has been. I don't, I don't, because I, I don't do workshops or, you know, MFA or anything. I don't receive that type of feedback. Uh, the one time I did post, uh, I was part of my online community of, uh, I mean, I've, I've been part of several uh, online. I used to have my own you know, poetry website uh, years ago where people would post you know, poems uh, too, but <clears throat> as far as an intentional online workshop, I've only participated once and that lasted for about a week. I can't even think of what the name of the site was, but when someone criticized, uh, I had a poem called uh, Bring Pigs to the, Wed- uh, to the Wedding, which was uh, a love poem, uh, a marriage poem. Uh, they talked about uh, that merged, you know, African American traditions and African traditions uh, for marriage. Oh, uh, just real quick, was that a, what, one of the poems in Tangerine Tubman? Uh, not in the chapbook. No, that. Well, I might have posted that online or uh, segment of it, maybe on my. I need to go back. I haven't been on my my uh, website. I haven't updated that in probably about a year. So I need to go back and do that. But I may have listed that online somewhere. Uh, maybe on my Twitter. I might have posted an excerpt. Uh, Tangerine Tubman was all one single poem. So it's not. it wasn't in that chat book. Yeah, it just but sounded familiar be- for a sec. Sorry. It, it may have it, it may have been something I posted online. I'm pretty sure I have at certain times, but 
uh, in segments. But the, the criticism I got was that I, uh, and maybe I probably mentioned it in another uh, interview, uh, was that it wasn't, it wasn't black enough, you know, that, that there was no urban and no ghetto and no despair. And I'm like, if, is that what you're expecting of, from black poets? That everything we write has to uh, highlight uh, some type of oppression porn? <laughs> then, no, I don't, this, I don't want feedback from people who are that narrow in what they expect of me and what I can write. So that was pretty much the end of that. Uh, spending time on that, you know, trying to receive feedback for my work. You know, I don't want, that's not the proper response uh, for someone to say, even if I'm a black person, <laughs> to have said something like, oh, your, your poem isn't black enough. And what, do you, what do you mean? It's a poem about getting married. Now, what, what am I, is a drive-by supposed to happen? Or, <laughs> what do you mean by it's not black enough? Are food stamps supposed to be featured? You know, you know, elaborate. You know what you mean on that, on that slur. <coughs> so, so hopefully, I'll be able to at some point. If I ever get back, if I ever return to writing, uh, you know, I'll be able to create a series of love poems in some future project, maybe three or four years from now, uh, if I continue writing, but. Because these are things that are needed, you know. I, um, one of my first chapbooks uh, published uh, from Argus House Press was a call and response, and um, there was uh, the artwork is reminiscent of the uh, for the cover that was reminiscent of uh, Fletcher Hanks, who was an artist in the you know forties and fifties. Uh, he he drew this uh, woman who. Her almost like a ghostwriter. Her her skull would catch fire. Her her head would catch a fire, and it was like a skull. I think her name was Fantoma, and uh, I love his work. Uh, very sci-fi-ish, uh, B movie type of stuff. Uh, you know, these are periods where if you saw anything that was black, you know, it was a lampoon of us. It, you know, some tribesman with the you know bone in his nose and and thick lips. So uh, that was an avenue that was we were forbidden to explore in a mainstream setting. You know, you know what did black art look like? Uh, what what does a black B movie look like? What does lowbrow humor uh, that doesn't portray black folks as stereotypes? You know what? What does that art look like? What does that creative process look like? So, uh, you know, again, it's this romanticism of blackness that in my work, you know, that it assumes it's always existed. There's always been this foundation of, uh, you know, B-level uh, fan favorites or... <laughs> Uh, cult favorites, you know, I want my work to be a cult favorite for some poet, you know, 50 years from now. So uh, they're like, oh, yeah, that poem was horrible. <laughs> but it laid the groundwork and allowed me to explore, you know, this theme or, you know, this subject. 
you know, because those things didn't exist for me. You know, all, all my, you know, I have the same heroes that from the 40s and 50s that any other kid would have had uh, to have learned about. You know, whether it's, you know, some type of Dadaism, you know, Picasso or, you know, these other outsiders. They're all white. You know, there, there were no black underground artists who uh, probably not, you know, really until, uh, you know, Basquiat in the 80s uh, to assume this mythical uh, artistship, artisanship. There were those that existed before that. In, in the black arts movement and elsewhere, but they weren't as popular in the mainstream, probably until uh, Basquiat. We needed more Basquiat in our Well, let me ask you, is there anyone you think is writing in that kind of role today? Um, hmm. There are some. Um, I don't... Again, there, there are underground they're not mainstream they're not mentioned in mainstream circles uh we have a hard time uh i think it's the the, the hard part is maintaining a, maintaining a legacy as black artists and what is gate you know in a in an art that is gate kept by by white institutions um where you're fortunate if you're like a Lucille Clifton, uh, who or um, Maya Angelou, who is perennially uh, accepted, you know, or Langston Hughes. Uh, but li- looking at like very esteemed poets, uh, like you know Cornelius Eady or someone who, you know, 15 years ago was considered the echelon of black poetry how he's barely even mentioned uh, as an inspiration for poets today. Um, you know, Afa Weaver, even uh, uh, Kumanyaka. <laughs> you know, we, you know, Rita Dove gets some shine every now and then, but, uh, but you almost never really see these poets mentioned in the mainstream today as exceptional, exceptionally accepted as they were, you know, 20 years ago. You would think that you know they still would be talked about. Their works would still be talked about. So that's kind of like the fear of being popular as a as a black poet. Uh, it feels like it's uh, performatory. Like you know, you know, in ten years you'll be passe, no matter how great your work was was received. You know, at that time, so what do you have to write about? How do you have to? What do you have to do to get into the that mainstream into that? You know, to be recognized as great, uh, I think it, it, you have to continually put out a lot of work uh, to where people can't deny that how prolific you were as a writer. Uh, and you have to be committed to your voice, I think, on some level. But um, but it's, just, it's hard to remain relevant. Uh, as a black artist in America, unless you just unless the mainstream accepts you as their own, uh, and the gatekeepers say that yeah, we're going to study this work, uh, the works of this writer, in class for all all eternity. You know, this is this is the this is the echelon. But there are so many great writers, uh, black writers, 
in the past who should be studied. You know, Ishmael Reed, for one, is, is almost never mentioned. Especially as a poet. As a poet, yes. Uh, he's, uh, we don't even talk about Amiri Baraka very often. Uh, as inspirational as he was to a lot of poets, you know, of a certain age, you know, and, and that's a shame. Um, so the, these standards, you know, who controls the aesthetics and, you know, how it's, uh, and how the work is, you know, spread out to, to, to the audiences uh, at large, you know, how do, how do we gain, how do we as black artists, how do we regain, uh, gain control of who and how, uh, what artists should be important, you know, for the world to say, oh, yeah, they, they, we have to follow the works of, you know, this writer, you know, uh, the works of, like, you know, Nikki Finney is an excellent poet. You know, her 2011 uh, National Book Award speech is, you know, probably the best speech, acceptance speech ever given on record. But you almost never hear anyone talk about her at all, you know, since then. So there needs to be a way for us as 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 an institution for black blackness, <laughs> black creation, to say, no, these are our standards. Uh, it's okay if you if outsiders, if if the white establishment uh, doesn't always teach for from 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 these people, but these are the ones that from within our canon we're saying that you have to read these artists, these 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 writers. Uh, if you're going to get a legitimate feel for who we are as as creative, uh, you can always go outside of that. But you know, this is who we're going to enshrine and carry forth. We have no way of doing that, so we're, our art is left in the hands of of like the, you know poetry magazine or something, hoping you know that they shine you know shine light on us, you know, make us relevant if if only temporarily. Uh, but there are no it's not like it used to be, you know, for us, uh, where we were mentioned in Jet Magazine or <laughs> Ebony Magazine or, or Essence Magazine, which used to be the, you know, they, they carried our traditions and our histories uh, in their pages. Uh, those places have, have pretty much died out or are not as uh, prevalent in authority in our society, uh, letting us stay connected as artists or as, as a culture. Uh, we are so widespread across the internet where the effectiveness of, of whiteness is its ability to make an, an uh, anthology of the things it holds dear uh, in its arts. Uh, it does it with every form from year to year. It's like these, uh, you know, based on ancestral Greek culture <laughs> or you know, Western civilization and, and the roots of that. Uh, here are here are those in, in that lineage. We're not able to do that as a culture in, in blackness. We're still trying to find avenues where we can be free enough, you know, to have that authority. And for us to say, okay, this is who we find acceptable. Uh, you know, please teach these folks in your classroom. Please enshrine these people into uh, to memory. You know, that's, that's a freedom and a luxury that we still don't have. Uh, we thought that, uh, you know, black arts programs or African-American studies programs would be able to have, would assume that authority when we, 
when they first became incorporated back in the 90s. Because uh, it was Father Gifts for the longest time, you know, a Black Studies course. There were, you know, the institutions were worried what was going to be taught in classes. Because, you know, the one thing a government will never do is empower its people to rebel against it. So it was worried, you know, during that time, institutions were worried during that time that, you know, African-American studies classes were going to, you know, teach sedition to its students. So the compromise was that initially, you know, the schools and stuff, the colleges and universities would have to oversee and okay the curriculums and the, you know, the syllabuses that were used uh, and how they were going to be, uh, be you know, taught to their students. And, you know, that lessened that effect that still gave control of African-American studies to the white institutions that allowed them. So, uh, but never has <laughs> blackness been allowed to enshrine itself and teach itself uh, to the mainstream. And that's, I think that's, that's all we want, you know, is to have our voices heard uh, unadulterated. I don't know how we get to that point, but, uh, but as artists, that's, you know, that's what we, at least for me, you know, that's what I aim toward, you know, to have my unadulterated voice uh, be considered as poetic as anyone else. As you're saying, the, the existing institutions just have no responsibility towards that and no desire to do it except when expedient, when, you know, there's money to be made almost. Yeah, uh, or, you know, like now, uh, there's such a, uh, a cry for diversity among institutions. Uh, I think this happens every so often, every several years. Uh, some poem or sort of some think piece is, is dissected uh, online, and it generates this backlash against uh, the institutions that exist. So you'll have, uh, you know, poetry magazines, uh, uh, university boards, uh, you know, whatever it might be, uh, you know, businesses, you know, promise to restructure uh, in response to, you know, this crisis of anti-blackness or racism. I think this happens quite frequently. And... You know, someone is appointed or made head of a department. Uh, it feels like progress. But I don't think it's progress just to put a black face over in charge of uh, any institution that at its core still enshrines uh, a white or Western aesthetic over all other aesthetics. So I don't, I don't know what it means just to have, even if you have a radical... Uh, head of whatever the, the organization is yeah or like their money comes or their money is in part from like i don't know doing experimentation on prisoners up until the yeah. 70s <laughs> yeah you know so and what is what really changes outside of the optics or the branding and all this still is kind of temporary i think you know i you know i find it odd at times uh you have more people, more white people uh, telling black folks uh, the importance of Martin Luther King or even Malcolm X in some circles. 
to, to black folks like, you know, these are their icons. Uh, and I, it, that, that's baffling. It's like how, who, when did our narrative get hijacked to where even in our rage and our rebellion and our activism uh, is used against us as activists? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, King wouldn't like that. You know, you know, you know, Malcolm X wouldn't have, wouldn't have done that. I'm like, wait a minute, you don't, you really, you really haven't said anything about King or X or, or anyone. You know, to say that, uh, you know, or Gandhi, they've thrown the same things out about Gandhi. You know, Gandhi wouldn't approve. Uh, I remember in, uh, uh, I have a poem, uh, Mad Cow and Special Seasonings. Uh, that was a hip that I remember the first time in the late nineties, uh, McDonald's had put Malcolm X on the side of a happy meal box. And that was like the most mind blowing thing to ever see in life. You know, most like, you know, you're not going to put this firebrand of, uh, in service of, uh, black liberation on, how can you put them on the side of a happy meal box? What message are you trying to send to our children? Uh, you know, how are you trying to co-opt uh, what this man stood for, uh, who was very popular in a lot of rap music in the early nine, late eighties, early nineties, uh, as a you know, as a firebrand, as a call for uh, self-reliance? Um, how do you put him on the side? You know, King. You know, you, you can almost see like, okay, yeah. Martin Luther King on the side of a Happy Meal box uh, during Black History Month. Uh, you just do not expect to see uh, some of the more re revolutionary elements on on the side of uh, being being made a commodity uh, for the pleasure of toddlers. Just seemed like so disrespectful on some level. But uh, no, we have we have a long way to go in American society to even be able to address each other as equals, see our history in, in proper light and not have those things distorted for the sake of a soundbite or you know, a 24 hour news feed or whatever it might be. We have so far to go and I hope to be able to create art that at least I don't want it to be memorable necessarily, uh, you know, for people to be able to quote it to each other, like, oh, yeah, my favorite line from anyone's verse. I, you know, I want people to be able to take what they've read and be able to apply it toward, you know, conversations they're having in real life with other people, you know, for it to inform, you know, their day to day, not to inform, you know, their, uh, uh, free time or their leisure, leisure, leisurely thoughts. You know, I, I just I hope my work is more urgent than that because that's what I intend for it to be. You know, not for it to be necessarily you know someone's favorite read while they're sitting in a garden uh, drinking tea, and then you know for them to something to think about. You know, what you know while they're washing dishes or whatever. I want it to be something that when they have a conversation on race or privilege or whatever it might be, you know, they don't have to quote what I say. I want them to take the meaning 
that they may have picked up from and, and, and apply that to their conversation. Uh, that would be a victory for my work if that were to happen. Um, yeah, well, is there any anything else you want to talk about? Uh, I think I've probably said a lot again, and probably not enough on some things. So I don't. I think I'm good. No, well, well, thank you for coming on, and I hope uh, hope we can talk again when your next book comes out, at least. I, I look forward to it. Yeah, th- thanks so much for doing this. All right, man. Thanks again for having me on.